time opening God's Word, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we come, God, expectantly um, as we've come in worship and song, and we also expect to hear from you now as we open the Bible. God, I pray for each of us that you'd speak to our hearts where we're at, that, Lord, through me, that you might speak through me, that I would be your instrument, that your Holy Spirit would move among us. Father, I pray you would bless us with the gift of having ears to hear you and eyes to see you as you minister to us this morning. So God, uh, we, we entrust this time to you, and we want to see Jesus lifted high and exalted, Lord, in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, how many are Laurel people out there? How, mon- how many Yannies out there? How many have no idea what I'm talking about? All right, so... <laughs> So if you were on social media this week, uh, this this weird auditory kind of thing exploded all over Facebook, Twitter, and maybe even Instagram and whatnot, where so apparently there was a high school student who was learning vocabulary words, and her word was Laurel, L-A-U-R-E-L. And she didn't know what the word meant or even the proper pronunciation of the word. She went to a dictionary site online press the, uh, the audio button to hear someone pronounce it, and when they pronounced the word Laurel, she heard the word Yanny. And she said, that's weird. How come I'm pressing this and I'm hearing the word Yanny? So apparently, she posted it on her Instagram and saying, hey, what do you hear? And some people were saying, I hear Laurel when I, when the sound, and some were saying, I hear Yanny. And someone else reposted it, went into another site, and then it went viral. And so if you did this, if you haven't, you've got to do this. Get someone to, to show you their Facebook page. It is pretty, pretty wild. Uh, we sat at our dinner table. I said, all right, kids, uh, family, what do you hear? I pressed play. Levi said, Laurel. Lucas said, Laurel. Zaya said, Laurel. And Erica said, Yanny. And it was just the funniest thing. We're like, how could you hear something completely different? So apparently there's, there's uh, interviewing different uh, auditory experts, and what it is, that somehow our brain is reacting differently to the way this sound is being portrayed through this audio clip. There's a certain pitch in it that some ears don't pick up and some do, and they cause us to hear the sound differently. Isn't that ridiculous? I'm totally using that when I get in trouble sometimes. Someone's like, I told you this. Like, that's not what I heard. It's a Yanny moment I just had. I'm sorry, all right? So, yeah. You're welcome when you use that one, all right? You, can give me, you don't even have to give me credit for that one. What, what's amazing, though, is that for me, when I first pressed play, I heard Yanny, 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 and I'm just cracking up because people are like, it says Laurel, I'm, I'm laughing. So I went to another site, and they were just having some other clips of this sound, and all of a sudden, I heard it say Yanny, Yanny, Laurel. And I, just like that, it switched. And from that point on, I've been a Laurel person, all right? What's amazing is that the audio clip never changed. But the way my ears heard the clip is what made all the difference. Y'all see where I'm going with this? You know, when, when, God, when God is wooing people like you and me to himself, the message he brings to us never changed. Never changed. You might say, I remember people coming and telling me about Jesus, and it never made any sense to me. In fact, it got me angry until one day 
something switched in these ears of mine, and what I hated and what annoyed me now became life to me. The message never changed, but your ears had a change. And the truth is that many of us stand here today or sit here today, perhaps, and when you hear this message of Jesus dying on the cross for you, it doesn't resonate in your heart. And what God needs to do is remove the scales from your eyes and give you the ears to be able to hear this as good news. And others of you are here today and says, it is good news to me. One thing the Bible tells us, though, is when we put our faith in Jesus, our lives are transformed within. God has given us faith, and now we who were once enemies of God are now daughters and sons adopted into his family. That is good news. We who were once children of wrath, deserving punishment for our rebellion against God and our breaking of his law, are now children of God. I might be by myself here. What's going on? This is good news. We who were once separated are now united with the God of this universe. And when that change takes place, We become people who know God and students of God, which I want to tell you then makes you who are Christians today theologians. Theology is the study of God, the knowledge of God, and it's communicated. And everyone who is a child of God then is a theologian. And the question is, are you a good theologian? who knows the truths of God reflected in the Bible, or one who is not on point with your theology because perhaps your belief about God is being instructed not by the Bible, but maybe by popular culture, or hip-hop, or Hollywood, or media. So what God wants us to do then as children of God is to be men and women and youth and young people who know God's word in order to know God and be theologians that represent him. A lot of times we talk about theology, and some of us just the very word cause your eyes to roll back. It reminds you of like philosophy class. It's like, it's like this is bad stuff. There, there is no such thing as boring theology. There are boring theologians, but there's no boring God. And so the problem is not the God about whom we speak, but those who communicate about God. And so as we talk about God, don't be boring. And in order to not be boring, you must know him. The God of the Bible is a God who is marvelous and mind-blowing. And the truths of him, the God of this universe, do meet us here on the streets. What we believe about God ought to matter in the way we walk down the block each day. Popular culture tells us, though, that you and I are not cut out to be people who know God, theologians. For men, for all of us men in this room, our popular culture oftentimes says that we are incapable, lazy, dumb, and disconnected. You just got to watch TV shows, and men are often portrayed as such. And the reason being is I think a lot of us as men, when we're under pressure and under the gun, we oftentimes do check out because we don't know how to respond to it. But you must understand that that's not who you are, what God made you to be. Not one who checks out, but one who says, you know what, God, I want to know you better. 
So though I might have a hard time grasping the truths of you, I still can be a man who knows you. Popular culture also says about our women that perhaps you're also incapable of knowing theology. Maybe it's not your place in the church to know theology, and that is something that's been in many ways portrayed in the local church throughout many generations incorrectly. See, God has created women to be women who are theologians, who know the Word and know God. In fact, Titus 2 says you are to be clothed with sound doctrine, adorned with the truths of God's Word. So whether you're for our men or for our women, we're hearing these ideas put forth toward us. And then to our youth. They're, they're, they're not smart enough, maybe, is what we're told. Or, or they're, they're too emotional. Or, or they, they can't grasp these truths. But that's, again, what's being told to us. But what does the Bible say? Because last time I checked, Joseph was 18 years old when he had visions from God. Last time I checked, Josiah became king at eight and brought a revolution to his land when he was a teenager. Last time I checked, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in a fiery pit furnace as young people. Last time I checked, Daniel was one who refused to eat the king's food as a young person. Last time I checked, Mary was visited by an angel and says, in your womb will come the Messiah, the Savior of all people. Last time I checked, our youth are pretty capable of taking God's truths and doing things with it. God has called us to be theologians, men and women, and youth who know Jesus today. And my call for you is to be a good one. The truth of the matter is that when we don't know the truths of God, when we don't know our theology, it makes us vulnerable as a church family. When we're not rooted and anchored in the character of God, we become very vulnerable to spiritual attack and very vulnerable, hear this, man, hear this, toward disunity among us. And I'm not speaking of some, some lofty idea or some distant idea. I'm talking about the people in this room, my family, my brothers and sisters, the ones I love. Those of you who I look at you, I know your stories and I love you. And you look around the room and you know each other. God forbid that we would ever be disunified, Brook family. But when we're not anchored in the truths of God, we become susceptible to lies and vulnerable to spiritual attack so that we see each other as opposition rather than as family. This is a dangerous thing. These are the kind of things that the New Testament is filled with warnings and and exhortations and pleading for us to know God and see him as the greatest treasure so that in our faith in him, it affects our life around here. The vertical influences the horizontal. And so as we come to scriptures, we come to passages like we're going to look at in the book of Philippians today, we see theology meet the street. We see the beliefs of the church affecting the the life of the church. And so what I want to do is I want to show you what the church in in the city of Philippi was susceptible toward, what they're vulnerable toward, and how theology is God's solution to their problems. So would you meet me in the book of Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2. And if you didn't bring a Bible, there is one in the pew in front of you, or the chair, I'm sorry, in front of you, the blue Bible there. If you don't own one, consider that one to be yours. Uh, And we really do mean that from the bottom of our hearts. We want you to have God's Word in your hands. So if you don't own a printed Bible, take the one in front of you. 
I think there's something remarkable about holding God's word, being able to underline it, write notes in the margins, cross-reference pages um, that digital copies aren't, aren't really able to do. The book of Philippians is in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And if I could, I might have you, I'm going to have you stand just uh, once more if you're able to. Would you stand and meet me in the book of Philippians 2? I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. This is arguably one of the most glorious passages in all the Bible. I'm a little giddy getting ready to talk about it with y'all. So God's word says, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the what? Same mind. That's unity there. Having what? Same love. Language of unity again. Being in full accord. Unity. And of what? One mind. Hear that. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, that's every one of us, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And then this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Can you say humbled himself? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word for us. You may be seated, family. As we've talked about this over the last few weeks, the book of Philippians is a letter written by Paul while he was in prison to a church that was struggling. They were suffering. They were facing opposition in their culture because of their belief in Jesus. Not much different than many of us face the, the social pressures. And we've seen that Paul told them to be steadfast. Don't give up under the pressure. He tells them, you are feeling this pressure from the outside coming in. But then here in chapter 2, he, he puts our attention to another dimension of their struggle, and that is within the church. He said, if there's any encouragement in verse 1 in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. He's like, in light of all I've told you, if you're feeling these kind of warm fuzzies about Jesus, if all of this, is any of this is connecting in your hearts, he says this, complete my joy. He's like, I'm, I'm thrilled then that God is connecting with your heart, but complete my joy by doing this. He says, being of the same mind, having the same love and full accord and of one mind. 
He's saying, I, I want you then, if, if this is making sense, I want you, church, to be unified, to be, to be like-minded. He says he speaks of, of the same mind and the same love. I think what he's saying is, when we put our faith in Jesus, we've all been given a new mind, the same mind, the mind of Jesus, the mind of Christ. And we've all been affected by the same love of God. And he says, therefore, because we've got the same mind and the same love, let's be a full accord. Be together, he says, being of one mind. Now notice, in verse 2, he speaks of being of the same mind and of one mind. You see that there in verse 2? He says, be of the same mind and of one mind. And when I read that at first, I thought he was saying the same thing. I mean, isn't that be of the same mind, be of one mind? But, but I think what he's saying is this. He's distinguishing. He's saying, on the one hand, every Christian has the same mind of God. That we have a transformed mind, but that doesn't mean we are of one mind. Now, that doesn't mean you're necessarily unified in your thoughts. And so what Paul is saying, positionally before God, we have the same mind. But relationally, that requires unity in relationship. So Paul is telling them, it's like, man, I want you guys to be united, for there to be no division in the church. But then he shares with us where this division is likely coming from. And for all of us, this is a heart check in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. It seems to me, though, that Paul probably is aware of some people in the church who are guilty of selfish ambition and conceit, and what it's doing is creating a wedge in their relationships and ultimately bringing disunity in the church. So for me and for you, we, we need to know what selfish ambition and conceit are. Say, God, is this in my heart? Because if it's in my heart, it threatens the unity of the church. It makes us vulnerable to this kind of spiritual attack. Ambition is a good thing. Ambition is a God-given drive to do something with ultimately the goal to see Jesus lifted high in our lives. That's, that's ambition. But you throw the word selfish in front of it as a modifier, I mean, that, that changes everything. Selfish ambition then makes it the, the, the ultimate goal of your ambition to be about you about you and your name and your reputation. It reminds me how in the book of Genesis, in the Tower of Babel story, it said that they wanted to create a tower to make a name for themselves. They wanted people to see their accomplishment and not praise the God who gave them the mind and the ability to do this, but to praise the people who did it. And you and I oftentimes are drawn and tempted to being those kind of people who want the attention and the glory and the praise for accomplishments we think we did by our, we think, strength, our own strength. But really what that is is selfish ambition. It's making ourselves look bigger in order for people to praise our achievements. I'll give you an example from my own life. When I was in junior high, I did gymnastics at Kelvin Park. And a male gymnast who's in eighth grade is a very rare thing. But I did gymnastics, and I tell you, I placed second in the city of Chicago on the parallel bars. Pretty impressive, ain't that? That's what's up. I tell my kids that. But the natural question you want to ask me is, 
how many people did you compete against? <laughs> and if I'm being honest with you, I want to tell you that's none of your business. But if I am honest, I would tell you three. But I beat somebody. See, see, selfish ambition wants to prop yourself up, and you might, not, you might put aside some of the details that will bring clarity to the achievements. Now, you and I are tempted to do that, whether it be on your resume, or wh- whether it's counting numbers in some form. In the church world, it's all the time. How many people are going to your church? And, like, and people, usually what they'll give you is their Easter attendance, you know? And that, that, that's, you know... It, and, and it's, it's, it's those kind of things. We, 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 want, we want to embellish the truth in order to make ourselves look better when really it's selfish ambition. It's not about God's glory at that point. It's, it's not about his name. It's about your name. And you and I fall prey to that. Selfish ambition, though, is not simply an action of the hands and feet, but more so an attitude of the heart and mind. Hear that? It's not just an action of the hands and feet, but an attitude of the heart and mind. But understand this, that the attitude of the heart and mind will inevitably affect the actions of the hands and feet. So what I'm telling you is, if there's selfish ambition in your heart, it's only a matter of time before it's reflected in your life. This is what James has to say about selfish ambition. He says in James 3, 14 through 17, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Because that's what selfish ambition does. It embellishes the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, James says. That's, that's hardcore right there. And he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I was thinking about that. Why would James say selfish ambition is demonic and where selfish ambition is, there is every vile practice? Those are strong words, aren't those? And I think what he's saying is, when you have selfish ambition, there is nobody you're not willing to run over to achieve your goals. Every vile practice. You need a lie to make yourself look better, then you'll lie. You need to cheat, then you'll cheat. You need to steal, then you'll steal. You'll do whatever it takes, then in order to lift your name up and prop yourself up, which equates then vile practice. It's something that's not from God. And if it's not from God, then where is it from? But he who's the enemy of our souls. And that's why James says selfish ambition at its root is demonic. So now I'm looking harder in my heart like, God, is this here for me? Is that in my heart? And the truth is, it's there. And it's in your heart. And it's dangerous. Paul says selfish ambition is and conceit. Conceit is excessive pride without basis. It's like saying you're a jar that's filled when you've got nothing inside of it. It's feeble. What I was thinking, though, this week is, how did this church go from being persecuted and Paul trying to encourage them in their persecutions and their struggle to also having selfish ambition and, and conceit and pride? 
how do you go from persecution to pride in your lives? Here what I was, here's what I was thinking. You see, when we are facing pressure in life, other people can become a huge inconvenience to your agenda. When you're facing hardship, people become pawns to fulfill your desire to get out of it a lot of times and are either inconvenient or just not working with what you want them to do. And so they fail to meet your needs and expectation, and what that does is create conflict and disunity. And so when we are facing hardship in our lives, if we start taking the posture and the position of fending for ourselves, other people will be in the way. And so what, what we would be told here is to not let hardship cause you to push people away, but rather to surround yourself with the family of God and not be selfish in your ambition or conceited in your outlook. And this is what Paul is telling them. It's fascinating how if this church early in the New Testament is facing friction and threats from the outside and from within. But, you know, if we study church history, that's, that's the case from the beginning of time and it's always been. Even in the book of Acts, uh, the, the apostles were imprisoned for preaching about Jesus, but there were also people who were lying in the church that had, had to be called out, threatening from outside and threatened from within. In the early church, in the days of Nero, the emperor of the Roman Empire, there was persecution towards Christians because he blamed them for burning down the city of Rome, when most likely he's the one who did it. And there was persecution from the outside, but also in the first century, there were these false teachers called Gnostics who had a, a heretical, a false belief because they weren't grounded in the scriptures. There was threatened from within. And even looking in our own country, there's threats from the outside, right? The, our society puts pressures on Christians where we're not accepted. Our beliefs are called bigotry or exclusive and intolerant. But then also within the church, we, we see a lot of times people who are not uh, being grounded on the Bible and its truths and preaching ideas that are not from the Scripture. And so from the beginning of, of the church until even our present day, there have been threats from the outside and from within challenging the church. And what Paul is just showing us that this is the truth and this is the case in the city of Philippi. But what do they do then? What are we to do? Well, I want to spend the rest of my time answering that question. There are two things that we do when facing threats. And those two things are to remain radically unified, and we do so by having good theology. So this is where theology meets the street. Selfish ambition and conceit and opposition, these are real things we deal with, but our belief about God then affects our response to that. Let's take a look at verse, uh, verses 3 and following. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's the first way you respond. When you're tempted to be prideful and self-focused, count others to be more significant than yourself. Secondly, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So this is how we preserve unity. We start looking around and saying, man, I'm going through my, my challenges, but you know what? My brother or my sister is just as important. I, I want to count them as, as even more significant than myself. 
And Paul says, don't only look to your own interest, but look to the interests of others. And, and what he's saying is, is he's, he's not saying ignore yourself. He says, don't only look to yourself. I think sometimes we go to these different extremes where we either only think about ourselves or we never think about ourselves. If we only think about ourselves, we become very self-focused and people become an inconvenience. Or if we never think about ourselves and only think about other people, our hearts become in disarray. And we're given and given and given and given, and we're burned out. And so Paul is saying is, we have to be stewards of our hearts, but also love one another radically. But we can't do that by our own strength. See, you and I just naturally don't tend to deny ourselves. We tend to prop ourselves up naturally. And this is where Paul takes the next step and tells us this in verse 5. Well then, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, God's anecdote for self-focused living is for us to set our eyes on Jesus, the ultimate example of selfless living. Because we know that destruction follows pride like a shadow. And Jesus, then, is ultimately the example we set our eyes on to imitate. You've been given the mind of Christ to imitate the life of Christ, is what Paul is telling us here. He says, this is your mind in Christ Jesus. And then what he does, he drops some amazing theology on us. And so I want you to understand this. When God tells us to walk with humility, he's saying we do so because Jesus did that. But in order to understand Jesus' life, we got to understand some sound theology here. And this is what he gets at in verses 5 and following. He says of, of Jesus, in verse 6, that he was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word form means he, he's in, in his nature is God. In his form, in his nature, Jesus is God, is what Paul is saying there. But although he was in nature God, in form God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he was equal with God. Jesus is equal with God. But he didn't grasp it. He didn't cling to it. And what does Paul mean there? It, it means that Jesus didn't willfully, willfully chose to say, you know what, I am God, but I'm going to submit myself to some limitations here. And what does he say here? As God... He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. What, what did Jesus empty himself of when he came to this earth as a man? Well, if he emptied himself of any of his divine qualities, he would no longer be God. Because God is nothing but his perfect divine attributes. So if Jesus was anything less than that, he couldn't be God. He surely did not empty himself of his divinity, of his, of his God nature. But what I believe Jesus emptied himself is of his rights. It's like Jesus surrendered and says, God, have your way here. 
He gave up his rights in order to take human form. Let me say this. God gave up his rights to being a spirit. Jesus, before he became a man, he didn't have a physical body. He wasn't limited to a physical body. He's spirit. But he entered the confines of humanity, never losing his deity, but still became a man. He gave up his rights to not grow tired or hungry and entered into our weaknesses. He gave up his rights to unhindered communion with the Father to the point where even on a cross he would say, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gave up his rights to not die in order to die. See, what Paul is saying is Jesus is the paramount example of one who died to themselves. But in so doing, he never ceased to be God. In fact, it says he takes the form of God, being born or being found in human form, as if he existed prior to becoming a man. What Paul is telling us here is that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, always existed, but he did choose to enter into human frame, and he became a man. Family, that's mind-blowing. The creator took on the form of his creation. The eternal and timeless God stepped into time. The king of all became the servant of all. The ancient of days, the I am, Yahweh, became a man. Family. If that isn't the perfect example of humility and dying to self, I don't know what is. And so Paul says, this is the mind, though, that God has given you in Christ Jesus to die to yourself. But what's beautiful in this theology here, as we see kind of Paul walk this tightrope, of talking about how God became a man and was still truly God, but became truly a man. There was never a time in which Jesus was anything less than truly God. And there was never a time after he became a man that he was nothing less than truly a man. And in theology, we call that the, the hypostatic union. And I won't be testing you on that next week. And what that is, is the, the word hypostatic means Persons, there's a unity of persons, the, 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 the divinity and the humanity becoming one, these two natures into this one man, God man, Jesus. It's a remarkable thing. Things that we, we can't even wrap our minds around. But when we see Jesus humble himself to that position, we see the greatest sacrifice. Get this, fam. Jesus gave up his rights to give his life to give us life. That's what he did. Jesus had a mission, and in order to accomplish that mission, he had to empty himself of his rights, take on the form of a human, be limited to this skin and bones for 30-some-odd years, getting tired at night, hungry at lunchtime, bleeding when he was whipped. This is God we're talking about. 
He gave up his rights to give his life to give you life. That's humility. Paul says that he was found in human form in verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And if that wasn't crazy enough, he says, even death on a cross. In Roman culture, crucifixion was something that was done to the most wicked of criminals. And that we would say our God was crucified is radical. Furthermore, in Greek and Roman culture, gods don't die. Roman gods, Greek gods are immortal. And even if they could die, they would never die at the hands of man. This is why Paul says the message of Jesus is foolishness to those who hear Laurel until they can hear Yanny. That the message of Jesus is foolishness when our eyes are covered and our ears are stuffed until God releases the plugs and removes the scales and then we see what was once foolish as sacred and beautiful and glorious. And Paul is saying here, we look at Jesus, we see perfect divinity into perfect humanity for us. He humbled himself became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Man. It was like Paul didn't want to stop there. He already made his point. He ain't got no other point to make, but he went on and said, that's not where the story ends. Because in verse 9, he says, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says he has been given the name that is above every other name. But what is the name that, that he's speaking of here? What is the name that is above every other name that was given to him after his death, burial, and resurrection? It wasn't Jesus. That was given to him at his birth. What is the name that is above every other name? the name of God, the name of Yahweh, the I am. And that's why Paul says in verse 11, so that, the, so that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. What is the word Lord? In Greek, it is Adonai, because there's only one, I mean, kurios, there's only one Greek word for Lord, it's kurios. But in Hebrew, there are two words for Lord. One is Adonai and one is Yahweh. Adonai is a Lord, someone who's a, who's a master of other people could be referred to as Adonai, but Yahweh is exclusive for the God of eternity. Earlier during service, we read, we had our reader read from Isaiah 45, where Paul quotes, and here in Philippians 2, Paul quotes Isaiah 45. And in Isaiah 45, it says, every knee will bow and swear allegiance to who? Well, in that passage, he says, I am God and there is no other. Hear what I'm saying here. Paul is taking an Old Testament passage that's spoken of, of the God of eternity, and he's applying that passage to Jesus because Jesus is the God of eternity. Jesus is Lord, and that name is the name that is above every other name. 
There is no other name higher than the name of God. And for Jesus to be bestowed that name, it wasn't mean that he became God in that moment, but for the first time what he's saying is he was declared as Lord who was resurrected and defeated death. And Paul says, this is what Jesus accomplished. Now I'm going to wrap this up real nice for you here. This message started out with Paul telling them to avoid selfish ambition. He's telling them, look, there is something that threatens the church and its disunity, and there are a few things like selfish ambition that will disunify the church. Because selfish ambition has with it every vile practice. Because it, it is a life that puts other people as a floor mat as you achieve your goals and your name and your recognition. So what Paul is saying here is, you want to see how to die to that? Well, let me put in front of your eyes, he who was the greatest of all, who actually rightfully deserves all the praise, but emptied himself of those rights in order to give his life, to give you life. And when you look at it, when you look at this theology, you look at this Jesus, this God of eternity, God forbid we would ever boast in anything other than the name of Jesus. What foolishness would it ever be to make a name for ourselves when there is one who has a name that is above every other name? What craziness would it be for us to want to receive glory and honor over him who is most glorious and honorable? But you see, when we don't know our theology, we become vulnerable to deceptive lies, lies that say, no, go ahead, do your thing. Go, go, go do your thing. Make a name for yourself. Go build that tower and get all the praise for it. Go build that company. Make a name for yourself. Get all the praise and glory for it. Go, go pursue those educational achievements. Go, go buy that crib. Go ride, drive that car. Do what you want. Make a name for yourself. That's what our culture tells us. God says, in everything, give God the glory. Yeah, go, go, do, go build a great company, but give God all the glory for it. Go, go get your achievements, but give God all the glory for it. Do all that you do so the name of Jesus is lifted high in your life because his name is above every other name. God's antidote for selfish ambition is Jesus. In church, God has given you the mind of Christ to imitate his life. Maybe you're here today and you don't know that mind because you've never put your faith in Jesus. You see, what we just read here is that Jesus went to death on a cross to pay for our sin. See, our, our, our rebellion has separated us from this God and Jesus took our punishment so that when we believe in him and turn from our sin, we are forgiven and he becomes our Lord. That's what God wants for each of our lives. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I plead with you to do today. Receive his forgiveness. Receive the new life he offers you. And then go out and you live your life to make much of that name that saved you. 
that's ultimately what we're here for. And until God opens your ears to hear that, maybe it's foolishness, but man, I pray that what was once foolishness is sweet in your ears. Let's pray. Father, we confess just the foolishness that any of us would ever think to do things so we get all the attention and praise and credit. God, I just, I'm just rebuked in the ways that I've done that, the ways I even struggle, Lord, and, and part of me is just so ashamed, Lord, that I would even struggle with that, Lord. I know, I know I'm a broken man who stands on clay feet, but God, for each one of us, Lord, set our eyes on Jesus, whether it be for the first time with faith and repentance, turning to you, believing in Jesus for forgiveness, or whether it be a daily routine as a child of God, setting our eyes on Jesus to live for him. Lord, I pray you keep us unified as a family here at the brook so, and, and keep our eyes on Christ. But we know so long as we do that, you will keep us together. Be among us, Lord. Transform us. Rock our lives, Lord. And with our own desire and by the strength of your spirit, we will give you all the glory as you alone deserve it. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, family, in a moment, we're going to close with this final song. And as we do every Sunday, what we do, we, we have a prayer team that comes forward in the front of the stage here on either side. And some will go to the back corners of this, this uh, worship center, the sanctuary. And what our prayer counselors are here for, really, is just whatever you got on your heart that burdens you, they want to pray for you about that. Whether it's something from the message that triggered in your heart, something you brought with you this week, something you know is facing you next week coming up. Man, we'd love to pray with you. So these men, these women are here to pray for you. And so if that's what's on your heart, don't miss an opportunity to have someone just cry out to God on your behalf. The rest of us, let's, let's stand to our feet and let's sing out to our God this song of worship. And at any point during the song, if God's moving your heart to come forward to be prayed with, would you go ahead and do that? Let's cry out to our God together.